Amen. While you're still standing, if you'll find in your Bibles Luke chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 27 this morning. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27 as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. Let me read God's word for us this morning. Would you have open ears to hear what he has to say to you? There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age... And to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. A God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would you help us to see clearly your word this morning? Through your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, Having something to look forward to is like a superpower, right? Uh, Slogging through Thursday is so much easier when you know that the next Friday is the last day of school, right? Or slogging through a couple weeks of just sort of, you know, mundane life is, is, is a bit easier when you remember that fun event that you have scheduled, you know, for that upcoming Saturday, uh, it, it, it propels you forward. Now, of course, we could abuse this. We could sort of live for the weekend or uh, we're always not present in the moment and, and looking forward to what's coming. But I do think that God has made us this way, uh, made us to be a people who need something to look forward to in a way that transforms our daily life. A Christian, you have something to look forward to, something ultimate. You look forward to a day when you will be present with the God who made you, the God who saved you. And what won't be present will be sin, death, sickness, pain, strife, none of it. You will be present with your God and Savior and in his eternal joy forever. If you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have that hope. If you're not a Christian this morning, You can't claim that hope yet, but I pray that you would be able to claim it even in the next 20 minutes as you hear God's word. Christian, you have something to look forward to. You get to look forward to the life to come. And really the point of the message this morning is that if you're a Christian, that means that you are sons of the resurrection. 
You've been given a new identity, sons, daughters of the living God, and therefore sons of the resurrection. And so I pray that this morning would be a chance for you to meditate on the life to come. Uh, Christians throughout uh, history have uh, tried to remind uh, uh, their readers, meditate on the life to come. See what you have to look forward to and see how it changes your daily life in the moment. And so we're going to meditate on this. What does it mean that we are sons of the resurrection? Uh, We'll look at four points. You can follow along in uh, the bulletin if that's helpful to you you as you fill in as we go. Uh, But sons of the resurrection, number one, will see marriage fulfilled. Uh, They will see marriage fulfilled. Anyone who is in Christ, who is a son of the resurrection, will one day see marriage fulfilled. Now, of course, we're reminded of the context. Uh, If you were here last week, or even if you weren't, uh, these last two passages, starting in verse 19 and now starting in verse 27, uh, some of Jesus' opponents come to him and try to trap him in his words. And each passage ends uh, by saying that they were silenced. They, They couldn't trap him. They couldn't best him in his words. Uh, he spoke well. And at the end of this passage, you, you saw at the end there, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. In other words, after this passage, the games are over. <laughs> the let's try to trap him and sort of indirectly, from here on out, uh, we're in what we call Holy Week or Passion Week, uh, where the leaders in one sense go underground and they say, how do we plot to put Jesus to death? That's the plan. How do we do it in a way that we get out scot-free? We're going to see that play out. Uh, And so there's a Holy Week urgency that starts after this passage. Uh, But but now we zoom in and say, what's this last trap that they try to leave for Jesus? Uh, Last week, we saw the chief priests come and try to trick him. Now we see the Sadducees. And so, of course, we have to ask, who are the Sadducees? Uh, It's interesting, Luke's readers probably had to ask who they were too, because Luke explains to them, uh, they are those who deny that there is a resurrection. Uh, The Sadducees, key to their belief is that they don't believe there's a resurrection of the dead. They don't believe there's a day coming when the dead will rise. Uh, That's why they're sad, you see, right? You've heard that. I didn't make it up, so don't be too mad at me. Um, But it'll help you remember. And so Luke tells us that's the core of it. Uh, They were actually part of the chief priests. So we looked at the chief priests last week who were in charge of the temple. Uh, uh, At this time, a majority, but a smaller section of them would have been Sadducees. Uh, They would be in sharp contrast to the Pharisees, who we've probably seen more of in the Gospel of Luke. And in fact, when Luke writes in Acts chapter 23, it actually gives us a great sort of definition of the dynamic here. Let me read for you verses 6 through 7 of Acts 23. Here Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, he's on trial and he answers to Rome. Now he's answering to the Jewish authorities. And he's actually kind of clever in what he does here, if you notice. It says, now when Paul perceived that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, And it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So it's a good way to get out of a situation like that. You sort of duck out as they fight with one another. Uh, but you see summarized there for us right in the Bible. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't even believe in angels or demons, spiritual beings like that. Um, and not said here, they, they, 
if you, if you thumb through your Old Testament, they would only accept the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. Uh, Genesis through Deuteron- Deuteronomy, what we call the Pentateuch. And so that's who the Pharisees are, and what's their trap? What are they trying to do here? Well, uh, they try to trap Jesus with sort of a, um, a scenario that plays out in a way that seems ridiculous, so that in their estimation, Jesus will say, oh, you must be right, there's no resurrection. It'll work out just like that, right? Uh, and so they give this scenario. First, they start with Scripture. We're in good ground. Part of the Pentateuch, five books, teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the, the man must take up the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers. So far, so good. They're, they're referencing the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 25.5 says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Uh, this is what we call leverite or leverate marriage, coming from the word Latin, which just means husband's brother or brother-in-law. Uh, since inheritance in Old Testament Israel was passed through uh, the male heir, the firstborn son, uh, this was critical in terms of God promising a land to his people that would, that would continue. Um, and so God uh, placed laws in place that would uh, protect and prolong these families. So, so far, they're just referencing an Old Testament teaching. Um, but they say, okay, Jesus, imagine this. Uh, she, it happens, and she marries uh, the brother-in-law. But then it happens, whatever the math is, the total of seven times, <laughs> and each time, no son, in fact, no children are born. And then the woman dies. And they say, okay, imagine the resurrection, which you seem to believe in Jesus, and certainly the Pharisees believe in. Uh, imagine the scenario. They, they are, they, you know, they're raised again to life, and they say, oh, I wonder how my wife's doing. And uh, they make their way over, and, and like, wait, why is she standing with my brother and my other brother? And wait, all of my brothers? <laughs> uh, no, that's my wife. And they're sort of just pointing at each other and and, and they get in this big fight, and that's what they do for all eternity, right? Um, you know, who knows how ridiculous the Sadducees had in mind, but the argument they're trying to make is, look, Jesus, it doesn't work. Uh, you say there's a resurrection, but look at this Old Testament teaching. They don't fit. They don't match together. Uh, so, therefore, they've trapped Jesus in his words, right? No, Jesus answers them. There's a problem with their supposed dilemma. They're assuming something. They're taking something for granted. Uh, They are assuming that life, that this life and the life to come are essentially the same. That anything that applies now will surely continue into eternity. In other words, they're arguing for 100% continuity, continuing, continuity. Uh, Everything you know now will just continue into eternity. And if that's true, uh, then they're saying there's a problem here. But Jesus exposes their assumption. He says in verse 34, uh, the sons of this age, so that's this age now, this life, they marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, no, Jesus says, that there's key differences between the life now and the life to come. There's also continuity. We'll look at that in a moment. But for now, Jesus is exposing their assumption. No, no, no. There are some key differences between this life and the life to come. 
And so first, he, let's focus on the marriage. What's different in marriage now and in the world to come? Jesus says that marriage is going to be fulfilled in the world to come. Jesus says that the sons of the resurrection, those who enter the new heavens and new earth, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. Uh, this, of course, raises questions for us, especially if you're married now. Maybe you've been going through your devotions and read this verse and, and thought, I, I kind of like my wife. <laughs> um, does this mean I'm not going to know her in the, in the resurrection? Does this mean that our marriage doesn't matter to God? I mean, is it just temporary and then in the new heavens, the new earth, we, we're just sort of this faceless crowd of worshipers? It's an interesting question. I remember as a kid growing up and hearing different sort of visions of what heaven might be like, and I was terrified <laughs> because the image I got was like maybe angel wings, certainly like a faceless crowd, and all you did was sing for all eternity. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> as, if, as if that's the only plan God had was, it was just one jam session for all eternity. Singing is certainly a key part of life. I mean, we think of our worship service. Singing is a big part of it, uh, but... But work and rest and, and, and worship and fellowship, all of that. We'll, we'll look more at that in just a moment. But for now, I want to focus on the, the discontinuity um, that Jesus is emphasizing here. Marriage will be fulfilled, not abolished, not uh, a, 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 as if marriage never mattered. No. It, it, if you look quickly through all of Scripture in Genesis chapter 2, we see, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife they shall become one flesh. Marriage was even before chapter 3, before the fall, part of God's good design, what we call a creation ordinance. And even in the Old Testament, God himself would use it as a metaphor for his relationship with his people. In Hosea chapter 2, he says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will make for them a covenant on that day. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. The New Testament does the same thing in an even bigger way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then Paul quoting Genesis 1, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Every marriage, certainly Christian marriages, but every marriage in this age, whether the people are aware of it or not, whether the couple like it or not, is an image of Christ and the church. So much so that we're heading in Revelation 19 toward what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So marriage continues in this world. It points to a future reality, and one day we will all gather in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, Jesus is pointing to the ultimate fulfillment of earthly marriage relationships. And so Jesus silences his opponents by pointing out there's some key discontinuity here, but marriage isn't even the biggest one. And so we come to point number two. You know, point number one, sons of the resurrection will know, will see uh, that marriage is fulfilled. Number two, Sons of the resurrection will not die anymore. Will not die anymore. You see this in verse 36. For they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. First, let's deal with this comment that they're equal to angels. Maybe that's where some people 
distort that and get this idea that we have angels' wings or uh, something like that. Now, if God wants it to make us so that we could fly in the new heavens and the new earth, that's up to him. He hasn't said anything about it, but we can hope. Um, but certainly not angels' wings. He, he's not meaning that we're going to become angels or change from human beings into a different kind of being. No, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus came to save human beings, not angels. We're different kind of beings by God's good design. Here he means we're like angels in the sense that we'll be immortal, living forever. We're like angels in that we're in the presence of God, worshiping him, loving him for all eternity. So that's one way that it's discontinuous, but in a much bigger way, we cannot die anymore. Is there a more precious promise to hold on to, Christian, that one day you will not die anymore? Death will have no place as you live in the presence of God. Christian, you have something to look forward to. One day this life will soon be passed, and you will enter into the presence of your Maker, and you will die no more. My daughter Rowan She's turning six soon, and, and she's a little theologian, which really all of our kids are, as we train them up. And we've talked about the new heavens and the new earth, and, and we have good conversations about what's going to be there and what's not going to be there. Uh, but her good theology comes out in, um, in great moments. I did ask her permission if I could share this. Uh, that starts now. She's getting old enough, right? Um, but <laughs> she'll stub her toe or uh, we have a sunken uh, living room, you know, 70s living room, and she'll, all of us at some point, fall off of that. Uh, or her brothers will crush the craft she just made, and uh, she will say, I wish this never existed. <laughs> I wish this wasn't part of our world. And then later she'll say, Dad, that won't be in the new heavens and the new earth, right? And I'm like, no, babe, that will not be. Your brothers will not smash your craft in the new heavens and the new earth. Or she'll say, Dad, don't you wish that everything sharp was made of stuffies instead? <laughs> Is that how it's going to be? <laughs> it's like, well, maybe not stuffies, but yeah, like no pain anymore. Uh, Christian, you have something to look forward to, and this morning you have something to meditate on then, to meditate on the world to come. One day, death will be no more. One day, sin will be no more. One day, strife will be no more. One day, anxiety will be no more. One day sickness will be no more. One day sadness will be no more. Indeed, all the sad things will come untrue, and you'll spend eternity with your God. Christian, you have something to look forward to. You have something to look forward to. And there's great discontinuity, and, and we need to praise the Lord for that. Discontinuity in marriage, discontinuity in the fact that the death will be no more. Uh, but before we leave this point, let's return to that question of, but is there some continuity? Um, I think I, I grew up in a tradition where the discontinuity was so emphasized uh, that sometimes you kind of thought, does my life even matter now? Is God at work in me now, or is it just then? In other words, there's a glorious discontinuity between this world and the world to come, but there's also continuity. Uh, and so when we think about marriage, uh, for instance... And we ask those questions, will I know my spouse? Uh, are we going to forget one another? Um, let, me, let me offer an analogy to see if it's helpful. There will be discontinuous things. Marriage will be no more because Christ will be fully betrothed to his people. There will be one marriage uh, to which all marriages point to. And so some things will be different. 
Uh, but it won't be different in a way. You know, in this world, when things change, it's painful. Uh, in the world to come, it will only lead us to praise and to worship. But even in this world, we have good analogies. Think of uh, when, uh, when our children, or perhaps you've already experienced this, when your children grow up and become adults, things change, right? Um, perhaps you don't give them an allowance anymore, or maybe you do and you're trying to stop. Uh, certain things change. They become adults. The relationship's different. And some of that can feel terrifying, uh, but overall, as I've uh, talked to both my parents and, and other parents who are in that boat, they, they say it, it's a sweet change. Uh, often the relationship actually becomes better and sweeter and fuller as you see who God's made them to be. Uh, there's key differences between a child and an adult, and yet that relationship does continue. Uh, and I think God has placed us, uh, he, he calls a people by his name. He puts his name on those people. A fellowship is a key, a, a means of grace that we receive from him. And so without trying to go beyond scripture, I do think there's continuity uh, I think we will know God's people and praise him together uh, for all eternity. Uh, think of, just to give a biblical example, and again, being careful here not to draw too much out of it, but think of Jesus uh, when he came back in his resurrected body and he came to the disciples. There was huge discontinuity. His body was no longer subject uh, to uh, the weaknesses or sicknesses of this world. Uh, he was what we call the first fruits. He, he showed what it's going to be like when we receive our glorious bodies. And yet he goes up to his disciples and, and shows them what? His scars. Uh, his glorious resurrected body doesn't do away with the memory, even of the painful things of this world. Uh, it doesn't do away with the memory of the cross. Uh, in fact, in, in, in the book of Revelation, we're going to sing uh, it, this will be one song that we do sing forever, if not continuously, uh, that we sing, blessed is the lamb who was slain. Uh, and so if that's true of the cross, then certainly even the crosses that we've had to bear, uh, we will celebrate the works of the Lord in and through us, the good and the bad, through all eternity. And so sons of the resurrection will see this. Number three, sons of the resurrection are counted worthy are counted worthy. We see this in verse 35. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and, and the resurrection from the dead, they will see these things. But what does it mean to be considered worthy? What does it mean here? Does it mean that they have performed their life in such a way that when it comes time for judgment day, uh, God will see and say, okay, you know, graded on a curve, but you did pass, and, and now you can enter into my rest. No. Second uh, Thessalonians 1.5, I think, gets close, close to the meaning. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering. And then earlier in Second Thessalonians, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve and for good and every good work by faith, of faith by his power. These are those who already belong to the kingdom, and yet they're living in a way that they would be counted worthy. Uh, those who have accepted Jesus as their savior, uh, who was the worthy one. And so who is considered worthy? Well, Luke you know, gives many answers throughout the gospel of Luke, but remember in Luke chapter 18, he gives the example of a tax collector who simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And he says, he went home justified. Or Luke 6, 20, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It is those who throw themselves on the only worthy one, Jesus Christ. And then who is it who considers them worthy? It says they're counted worthy. Who counts them worthy? But God himself, the very God who will say through Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. Through Christ, of whom God says, you're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died on the cross for you, then through Christ he looks to you, seeing sin forgiven, seeing you justified once and for all. And he says, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. All through Christ. How are they considered worthy? We often ask this as we get to know people as elders when they're considering membership. And we, we're, we're trying to see, has, has Christ worked in their life? Have they taken hold of the gospel? And we'll ask them, uh, if you died and stood before the judge and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? It's hypothetical. I don't think it's going to be asked that way. But we, we ask that question. And people, give, people answer it in different ways, different wording. Uh, but all of them answer it by pointing a finger with an outstretched hand metaphorically to Jesus Christ. In other words, the only true answer is, why should I let you in? In one sense, the first answer is, I don't know. I don't have a reason. I'm not smarter. I didn't sin less than someone else. I know my sin. It's ever before me. But I can point to Christ, who lived a perfect life, a sinless life, who was worthy who took my sin away. In him, I don't know why, but in him, by his choice, I'm counted worthy. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are counted worthy. You are justified. uh, And one day you will enter into his rest because in him you are sons and daughters of the living God. And that's point number four. Sons of the resurrection are sons of God. Jesus gives an amazing a biblical argument. And he doesn't turn, you know, remember the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. He doesn't turn to some passages like Job 19 or Psalm 16 or Daniel 12 or Isaiah 26 reads this, your, your dead shall live for their body shall rise. He doesn't turn to those more obvious Old Testament passages about the resurrection. One, because they don't accept those scriptures. And so he's, Jesus is being wise. He's like, okay, you want to stick to the Pentateuch? Let's stick to it. First five books. But he goes probably somewhere that we wouldn't expect. Uh, he, he says, think of the, the moment at the bush where Moses says, who are you? And he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. Why does Jesus go there? He says, because he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He God says to Moses, Moses, you're alive now. Those patriarchs are long dead, but I am the God of Abraham. I continue to be his God, and I'm your God. And, and now we could just continue the list as you read your Old Testament. The God of Moses, the God of David, he's the living God and the God of the living. And we are sons of God if we believe in Jesus Christ. Sons and daughters of the author of life. Christian, this is worth meditating on. Imagine if you spent time on this, ruminated on it, thanked God for it. How might that affect your daily life? 
Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then you are sons of the resurrection. You have something to look forward to and something to meditate on. John Calvin, an early reformer, puts it this way, and we'll close with this thought. You know, he He's, he's pondering the, the, the world that we live in, the, the pain that we see, the political turmoil, the questions that we have. How is a Christian to live with hope in the midst of that? Well, he says they do it this way. They will set their eyes on that day when the Lord will receive his faithful people into the peace of his kingdom. Wipe every tear from their eyes. Clothe them in garments of glory and gladness. Feed them with the indescribable sweetness of his own pleasure. Raise them to fellowship in his own lofty heights. And at last, grant them participation in his own happiness. Christian, you have something to look forward to. Would you, with me, set your eyes on that day when the Lord will receive you into his presence and and do away with all sin and shame and death? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that your word is, it truly is the very words of eternal life, pointing us to the reality, the future reality that we have in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would help us to meditate on the life to come in such a way that we would be so heavenly minded that we would be of much use for your kingdom even now. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.